I know this is the Netflix generation and all that kind of stuff, and so we don't really like flip channels anymore. Um, but can you recall a time way back in the olden days when we used to do that, when we used to flip channels, we'd have the remote, and we would just go through it. And it seems like when I travel, um, you know, normally, uh, that, that's when I seem to be flipping the most uh, because the controller doesn't work as funky and as good as the one, my one at home or whatever. But, um, but I can remember uh, th- there have definitely been times, and, and, and I don't know if you can relate, but there's been times where I've come across a telenovela on Telemundo. <laughs> and my Spanish isn't that great these days. Um, so basically what that means is I don't have a clue what's happening. But if, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I am just captivated by what's happening on the screen. I have no idea, but I mean, it's so dramatic and there's like all this kinds of crazy drama going on. And even though I don't speak the language, it's clear that, you know, somebody's upset or something happened and, you know, it's, it's anyway, it's, it's, it's very dramatic. I kind of feel as I was looking at this passage of scripture, this passage of scripture reminds me of a telenovela. And I, I compare it to a telenovela because they're better than the American soap operas. Not that I'm an expert on American soap operas or anything like that. Um, but this passage reminds me of that. There's so much drama in this passage that Chrissy read, John chapter 8. There's forbidden sex. There's accusations. There's conniving. There's an evil conspiracy. There's corruption. Entrapment, the threat of death, intrigue, and the dramatic one-liner, which of course is the oh snap moment. Now, uh, I, I feel like if this were a movie, it could make for a very interesting and compelling trailer. Because uh, you could get a glimpse of all these elements of the story all wrapped up in 30 seconds or however long a trailer is. But maybe not, because I'm not a filmmaker and I don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, that's the impression I get. But it's really a fascinating story, what we, what we see here. But before we dive in, I must give a disclaimer, because my Bible gives a disclaimer. And if you look into the Bibles that you have, whether they're uh, the old-fashioned kind with actual pages or on your phone, you may see a disclaimer there about this passage. And, and basically, it's this, and I'll hit it real quick. Based on manuscript evidence, there is some debate among scholars where, whether this account whether this story actually belongs here in John's gospel. Some ancient manuscripts place it in Luke's gospel and in some other places. And though there's debate about where this account belongs, uh, most scholars do agree that it did occur at some point during Jesus' ministry. But to set the scene here, Jesus goes into the temple one morning And he walks in, and he sits down, and people gather around him, and they want to hear him teach. And suddenly, there's a commotion. And what ends up happening is people look over, and they see that the the religious leaders are dragging in uh, a woman into the temple. And they place her into the center uh, of everything that's going on there. And they address Jesus, who has been teaching, saying that this woman has been caught in adultery, and they remind Jesus that the law, the Mosaic law, 
calls for her to be put to death. And so they, they ask Jesus, what do you think about that? And so in verse 4, we see that she was caught. It says she was caught in the act of adultery. So I, I guess you can use your imagination or not. Um, but that's what it says. So in light of that, though, I don't know if she's even clothed. I don't know what the situation is here. And were they like, and if she is clothed, was it, was it like, hurry up, put something on, because we need to drag you in front of Jesus and use you as a prop to trap him? What is her emotional state? Is she fighting with them? Is she struggling with them? Is she crying? Is she screaming? Is she quiet and withdrawn because of, of, of their their attempts to parade her and to shame her publicly? Is she anticipating that she'll be killed? Surely she's aware of what these religious leaders had just said to Jesus, that according to the law, she must be put to death. What's going through her mind? What is the scene like? And then, of course, the obvious question is, where's the dude? But he's not there. And they say to him, what do you say, Jesus? And while they're awaiting his response, Jesus does something very, very interesting and profound. He bends over and starts writing on the ground with his finger. But they were trying to test him, to find a way to bring charges against him. And they put him on the spot with this situation. Don't you hate that when you're put on the spot? My brain tends to vaporize when I'm put on the spot, and I can't even think straight anymore. But they seek to put him on the spot here, and they test him in this way. And they see this as a lose-lose situation for Jesus. But they see this as a win-win situation for them. The reason why they see this as a lose-lose situation for Jesus is because in their minds, if he upholds the law, the, the Mosaic law, and he agrees that she should be put to death, he's actually going against the Roman law. And they were living under the Roman Empire. So if he upholds the, the law of Moses, he goes against the Roman law, which did not permit the Jews to exercise capital punishment. But if he sides with the Roman law and submits to Roman law in that moment and spares her life, Jesus is now contradicting and violating and going against the law of Moses. And so they've got him right where they want him. Lose, lose for Jesus, win, win for them. And at this point, the woman has no idea how this is gonna play out. She's aware that the religious leaders wanna put her to death and they've now dragged her into the temple to see Jesus, and now her fate sits within his hands. And in her, his hands, her fate has been placed, and, and she's at his mercy. It's obvious that Jesus is about to say something, and they're filled with anticipation. And then this woman and everyone else that is present Here's Jesus say these words in verse seven. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
this whole situation was unfolding with a, with a, um, a particular trajectory. And it was all leading up to this moment. And Jesus takes this moment and he turns it all upside down as he tends to do. And we have this sort of record scratch moment with this incredible plot twist where Jesus doesn't respond in the way that they thought. He doesn't comply with the options that he was given. They said, this or this? He says, no, that. And he takes this whole thing down a completely different path. And the religious leaders end up with nothing or with more than they bargained for, depending on how you look at it. And so suddenly, the religious leaders begin to feel a little uncomfortable because they see where this is going. And maybe some among them that were maybe the sort of the hangers-on within the religious leadership, maybe not the ringleaders, but they, they begin to shrug their shoulders and smirk nervously, admitting, well, he's kind of got a point there, doesn't he? And what is the woman thinking in this moment as she hears these words spoken by Jesus? Her disposition and emotional state are not recorded for us in this passage. But at what point, as this is all going down, do you think that she looks into Jesus' eyes? Maybe it was at this moment that she noticed the obvious contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders, and in Jesus finding someone totally unlike her accusers. And then Jesus does something very interesting again. He bends over and he writes on the ground with his finger again for a, for a second time. Now, how much would you pay to find out what he was writing on the ground? <laughs> If only we knew. If only we could watch the video replay or get the video surveillance of that. And of course, people have speculated over the years of what he was writing. Maybe between the two times that he wrote on the ground, maybe he, he began to write something and, and, and finished it the second time. So maybe the first time he wrote something like game and the second time it was over. <laughs> or maybe it was something like check and then it was mate or you and then lose. <laughs> or maybe the first time he wrote out the names of the religious leaders and the second time next to their names he wrote out all the sins that they were guilty of. Who knows? But this is a game-changing moment. This is this massive plot twist. No one could have anticipated that it was gonna go down this way. The religious leaders, they thought they had him. Those in attendance were, were struck with the intrigue of the situation, thinking, how is Jesus going to get out of this, and what is he going to say? They would have recognized it as a lose-lose situation for Jesus. But in this moment, what Jesus does is he unmasks the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. These religious leaders were disgusted with the sin of this woman caught in adultery, but they were blind to their own sin. And one by one, the text reveals that they walk away with the oldest going first. 
You know, when maybe one guy was like, you know what, I totally forgot, I gotta go watch the grandkids. Or, you know, my wife's calling, I gotta take this call. Or I gotta go pick up my kids at daycare. I gotta take my kids to soccer practice. Whatever it is, they're finding reason to, oh, I'm not really here. And they kind of just drift away. They had Jesus right where they want him. And then it all just fizzles, fizzles and their conspiracy just evaporates. Their plot to trap Jesus is gone. And what is, the, what is the significance of the oldest walking away first? I honestly have no idea, but when we find the new teaching pastor, you can ask him and then maybe, <laughs> maybe he can shed a little light on this for us. But I have no idea. It's interesting. It's weird that it's recorded there for us, but I have no idea what it means. And that's okay, because it's not the point of the passage anyway. But now that they've walked away, these religious leaders that were seeking to entrap Jesus, these religious leaders that have accused this woman, they're not there anymore. And now it's just Jesus and the woman standing there. In verse 10, it says, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And it's almost like, it says here that Jesus stood up. It's almost like he wasn't there for everything leading up to this. It's almost like he drops in at that moment. He's like, where are they? Like, what happened? Has no one condemned you? And clearly they had condemned her, but no one stayed to back up that condemnation and those accusations and provide evidence of that. And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said these beautiful words, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What's interesting about this story is that everybody walks away. The accusers walked away in shame, but the accused herself was rescued from her shame, and she walks away having encountered the mercy of Jesus. And while this is a beautiful display of mercy, you have to admit it's a bit of an odd response. What is the deal with Jesus? Does Jesus not think adultery is a big deal? Is Jesus just uh, sweeping this under the rug? Is he just uh, letting her off the hook? I mean, look, we all love second chances, but is adultery not a thing? Is it something that can be just ignored? And if that's the case, I'm sure if, if I asked, 100% of those in this room would disagree with Jesus. That yes, adultery is a thing. Is that what's happening? Is Jesus saying it's okay? Is he just winking and nodding at this situation? Is he doing that? Obviously not. From what the rest of what we know about Jesus revealed in scripture, that's clearly not the case. So how are we to understand Jesus' response in this moment? As we look at the way that he responds, what can we glean from this? What does this communicate about the character and the nature of God when Jesus himself responds in a way that was totally unpredictable and not what anybody would have expected regardless of which side of this issue you were on? 
So it does seem a little odd, but as we take a closer look, we see that it's not that odd at all. See, Jesus knew, and this is why it wasn't the trap they thought it was. Jesus knew that the religious leaders themselves had already disregarded the law in this whole thing by arresting the woman without the man. See, in that part, in that culture, within that culture, women were discarded. They were not valued at all. They were essentially, permit me if I may say this, they were the dirt on the man's shoe. That's how women were treated. And it's crazy to me when I think about how in that part of the world, women are still treated like that in many of those countries in the Middle East. And so, I don't know, does that explain why the man's not there and they're just dragging this woman out? I'm not sure. But Jesus is catching these religious leaders as disregarding the law because the law required that both parties be held accountable, not just the woman. Furthermore, the law also required, because these religious leaders, they're, they're citing the law, right, to bring the situation to Jesus, but the law also required that there be a thorough investigation. We are told in the book of Deuteronomy that they were to inquire diligently. At least that's what my translation says. Inquire diligently to determine if charges such as this were true. That was their obligation and their responsibility according to the law of Moses. The law also required at least two witnesses and that it be the witnesses that first put their hand against the guilty. So in other words, they were to be the ones that threw the first stones. But they failed to produce a man that they accused of participating in this sin with her. They didn't bring charges against any man. And no, if there was no investigation to present witnesses and evidence against her. So Jesus here is not disagreeing with or contradicting the law. He's actually upholding it. Jesus knew that she was guilty. She knew that she was guilty. And that's why he told her in verse 11, go sin no more. In other words, stop it. And in not condemning her and instead offering her mercy, there's this beautiful thing that's taking place here. Because what's happening here is that Jesus is anticipating the day when he would die in her place to pay the penalty for her sins. And in doing so, the justice of a holy and righteous God would be served. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, we will look at this story and we will see that we are the woman. Guilty and in need of mercy. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. All of us. Yep. Even me, even you, even Christians. But here's the thing. Christians are not perfect, but we follow the one who is. And sometimes when we make mistakes, 
It can um, hurt the example that we seek to set for other people. It can bring shame upon the Christian faith. And sometimes we even look to Christians that we know who have made mistakes. And we might think, well, if that's what a Christian is, then I'm not interested. Flawed logic. Christians do not claim to be perfect. We only claim to follow the one that is. So the Christian faith is not defined by our example or what we model. The Christian faith is defined by the one that established it. It's defined by the one that is the center of it. Jesus Christ himself, who was absolutely perfect. And because we're not perfect, that is also why we are not just the woman, but we are also the religious leaders, prone to self-righteousness and the condemnation of others. We often hold others to a standard of perfection that we might not even realize that we're holding them to. And when people prove their humanness, we're horrified at their sinfulness and their brokenness. When we cry foul, we get offended and we condemn as if we're not all in the same situation. We act like these religious leaders and act like we're not broken and we're not sinful ourselves. We, we climb up onto our high horse and we look down our noses not remembering that we were really all on the same level. And we have no righteous standing to point the finger at anybody else. Because we are so desperately in need of mercy ourselves. And I think that the Christian community would be a lot more loving, would be a lot more accepting, would be a lot more gracious and merciful if we had the ability to acknowledge our own sin and how much we need Jesus. I think it's easy to give us lip service to stuff like this. But actually, think about the ways that we condemn other people. Or we allow circumstances to bring us to that place where, where we're just disgusted or we are offended. Oftentimes, what we're doing is we are only, in our complaints and in our condemnation of other people, all we're really doing is pointing out the obvious. We're measuring them against a standard of perfection and only pointing out how they fall, fall short of that. But instead, what if we were keenly aware of our own sin? What if we were keenly aware of our own brokenness and our need for Jesus and how undeserving we are ourselves of the love and the grace and the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus? What if we were so keenly aware of that that we recognize that we're all on the same level in that regard? And then even when stuff goes down that hurts us or whatever it might be, what would it look like to see in that other person, that broken person, because it's always so easy to see the flaws of other people, what would it look like for us to acknowledge that about them and be reminded through their example that we are them? Or like this passage, that we are the woman, that we are the religious leaders. 
I think it's funny because sometimes we, uh, 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 this happens a lot when we look at Scripture. We, we look at the different stories in the Gospels of, uh, of the accounts and stories involving the, the religious leaders of the day. And we make them out to be idiots. <laughs> these idiots, these, these guys, what are they doing? But the thing with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the thing with them is that they thought they were better than everybody else. And in that moment, when we look at Scripture and we see accounts of these Pharisees, we sort of take that same position against them. We take sort of a self-righteous position. It's like, well, I could never be like one of these Pharisees. But we become the Pharisee. We become like these religious leaders. But we see here at the end of our passage that Jesus calls her to make a change. The Bible calls that repentance. It's a change in direction. And that's a situation that we're all in. We're all faced with that moment. When we come to faith in Jesus, it first involves that. And when we find ourselves in that situation where we, where we are so desperately in need, and we realize that we need to make a change. It's not always that we run to Jesus. Sometimes we resist Jesus. And sometimes we try all kinds of other things to improve our lives. And to get out of the brokenness that, we, that we're living in. To get out of the brokenness that we experience. And we, we pursue all kinds of things to get out of that broken state. And whether that's seeking after success or wealth or fame or we try to make other changes to, to better our lives by pursuing a new career or entering into a new relationship, a new circle of friends. We might try to find a way out of our brokenness by trying to numb the pain in a variety of ways. I don't have to list those ways. I think they're all obvious to all of us. But no matter what we do, these are all broken attempts to get out of brokenness, and that doesn't work. Only Jesus can rescue us out of brokenness. You see, what happened with Jesus, and as we see this account here of his earthly ministry, Jesus came down into our world. Jesus, he was perfect. He was God. He came down into broken, sinful world, and he died on the cross for us. And it wasn't just that from a historical perspective he was killed by the Romans on a cross. It's not just that this event happened, but something of, of a much greater spiritual significance was taking place. As he submitted himself unto death in that moment, God the Father took all the sins of this woman and all the sins of the religious leaders and all of your sins and all of my sins and he placed them upon Jesus in that moment. Here where they were calling for the death of this woman for her sins, Jesus died in her place. He died in your place. He died in my place. And then what happened was he rose again, proving that his claim that he could conquer sin and its effects, death, were actually true. He proved that claim that he could defeat sin and death. And so what happens then is that as we, as we turn in repentance and we place our faith in what Jesus did for us, what we find is mercy and what we find is forgiveness. 
And he brings us back into a restored relationship with God. That is the gospel. That's why it's called the good news. The gospel reveals how great our sin is and that the love of God is greater. Right? We don't walk away with, when we face the gospel, we don't walk away with a smaller view of our sin. We walk away in horror at our sin. And that speaks to us about how amazing and how great God's love is, that he would save us from that. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you get this. And when I say you, I I say me. Just because we're believers in Jesus doesn't mean we get this. There are times that we still fall short and we are horrified by our own sin. And especially if we've placed our faith in Jesus prior to that moment, we are racked with condemnation and guilt and shame and we are mindful of the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us and how much he loves us. We get the theology part right, but then that gets twisted to where that becomes the point where we are condemned by those things. And we think, well, that's it. God doesn't love me anymore. How would God love me? I placed my faith in him. I committed my life to him. I wanted to serve him. I wanted to do good things. I wanted to follow him. And then look what I did. I screwed up. Or maybe it's I screwed up again and again and again. And even though we've placed our faith in Jesus, sometimes we find ourselves far from God in that moment. And we feel like, as the Bible says, that our sin separates us from God. But the reality is is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And the Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God because we've been washed by his blood. Because all the sins that we commit, that we think destroy that relationship with God and, and separate us from God, all those horrible things. And people say, well, no, Lorenzo, you don't understand. You don't know what I've done. I'm like, well, Jesus does, and he died for you anyway. All those horrible things. God acknowledges, and he says, yep, that's horrible. There's only one way to fix it. I'm going to send my son to die on the cross for you. The greatness of our sin cannot compare to the greater love of God. Romans 5, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say God shows his love for us that after we cleaned up ourselves and stopped sinning. So no, no. God showed his love for us that while we were at our worst, while we were far from God, while we hated God, proven by our actions, Christ died for us. The gospel unmasks our hypocrisy and strips away our self-righteousness, but it does not leave us condemned. It reveals how incredibly loved we are. John 3 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, like the thing is, like, we typically think that when, we're, when we think of the word self-righteous, we typically think of the word self-righteous defined by how we compare ourselves to other people and how we think that we're better than them. That's typically how we think of the word self-righteous. We sort of think of ourselves behaving or other people behaving like these religious leaders did here where, where there's sort of a, a sense of moral superiority. But what if we just took that word self-righteous at face value? Self-righteous. Self-righteousness isn't just thinking that we are better than everybody else. It is also saying that the cross of Jesus Christ was unnecessary and we deny that we are sinners in need of rescue. To be self-righteous is not just to say that you are morally superior to everybody else. It's saying, I don't need Jesus. And he died for no purpose at all. Contrary to scripture, 1 John reminds us very clearly and very directly. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the thing is, in this in this, in this sort of dynamic here in our relationship with, with, with God. He sees us as we are and he accepts us as we are, but he does not leave us as we are. As he said to the woman, sin no more. He knew exactly what he was dealing with with her. He knew that she was an adulterer. She knew that she was an adulterer. And yet, Jesus sees her, accepts her, but does not leave her that way. And he says, go sin no more. I have a better life for you. I invite you into a new way of living. And sometimes people, in relation to dealing with their own sin or this idea that they fall short in any way, they're like, no, 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 God loves me just the way that I am. God is love and all that stuff. And so, like, you know, only God can judge me, bro. The problem is he's going to. <laughs> and we cannot count on the love of God to be merciful if we reject the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for us. Jesus died on the cross for us so that we didn't have to die ourselves. He took the penalty for our sins upon himself so that we didn't have to take the penalty. It was very literally a substitutionary death, a substitutionary uh, sacrifice. And we need to admit our need for Jesus. If you are not a believer, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you don't even know why you're here this morning. 
maybe your friend invited you or maybe you randomly Googled churches on the west side or something like that and you ended up here and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I appeal to you, place your faith in Jesus. Sometimes we think that we, when, when, we, when, we, when we become religious or we you know, start to believe in Jesus, that we're going to find in Jesus that he's this condemning sort of caricature and this hateful and this big meanie and all of that. But what I love about this series is we've been sort of looking at these odder aspects of Jesus' life in ministry is that what it all does for us is that it highlights his character and his nature. And every time we look at this stuff, there's something surprising about it. And it's only surprising not because we haven't read it before, but maybe it's surprising because we haven't read it before, if you know what I mean. And sometimes we have this idea of who Jesus is and we forget how he's actually revealed himself. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that might be you. If you are a follower of Jesus, that's probably you as well. We make up these ideas in our own minds of what Jesus is all about. And we, we fail to allow scripture to inform our view of him. And, and if, you've, if you place your faith in Jesus, I can tell you what you're going to encounter. I can, I can tell you what you're going to find. And what you're going to find is that Jesus will meet you with mercy. Jesus will meet you with grace. Jesus will meet you with forgiveness. He won't ask you to clean yourself up. He won't wag his finger at you and say, what about that? What about last weekend or two years ago or that thing? You know who does that? The devil. That's not Jesus. And then when, even when we're faced with our sin, if we find ourselves with an awareness of our sin where we are finding that we want to become distant from God in that moment, that's not the Holy Spirit convicting us and drawing us to the Father. That's the devil accusing us and condemning us and pushing us away and telling us that we're not worthy. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit says, you are a sinner and God loves you so much that he sent his son into this world for you to draw you into a relationship with him. We can actually become aware of our sin in such a way that it draws us to Jesus to find mercy. What do you think this woman thought about Jesus after this encounter? How did that differ from what she thought of him before that if she knew of him? I think we know how she felt about him after this encounter. She was so aware of what she had done. And yet, Jesus confronts her accusers. And he sort of lays it all out, saying, we're all the same. And he says, I invite you to a new life. I want to speak to Christians for a second. Just because you're placed, you've placed your faith in Jesus, it doesn't mean you don't struggle with this stuff. I want you to know that just as we talk about the woman caught in adultery and how she found mercy with Jesus, if you're a believer and you've wandered and you've strayed or you've done something that you're not proud of and you've done something that you're ashamed of, his mercy is still available to you. Do you think that when this woman walked out of the temple, do you think she felt like screaming for joy? 
Do you think she skipped all the way home? I don't know. It's kind of a Disney kind of picture in my brain, but how do you think she felt? Reason to be excited, right? Overwhelmed with the grace that she encountered. Overwhelmed with the mercy that she encountered. Maybe maybe that wasn't her emotional response. Scripture doesn't tell us, but maybe she broke down crying, moved by what had just happened. This is what happens when we encounter Jesus. And if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you may have lost sight of that. It's possible. We can sort of get, go through the motions. We show up at our church gathering. If we participate in whatever, we show up at neighborhood dinner. We, we're part of a discipleship group and all that. But something at the heart level doesn't get touched. And I'm not saying that we have to be hyper-emotional but the reality of the love of Jesus for you has to touch you in a deep, deep spot. And it has to overwhelm you. And so what we need to do is we all need to admit our need for Jesus. We need to place our faith in him. And in doing so, we will find mercy that we don't deserve. And we'll also find a love that lasts forever. And so this morning, I want to call you to Jesus. There's nothing else I could say. There's nothing better I could call you to. So I call you to Jesus. Let's pray.